Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, Des Cahill here. Today's guest on the island is one of Ireland's most popular singers for a few decades now. He's an icon around Dublin, Aslan's lead singer, Christy Dignam. Now, we actually recorded the interview early enough during the COVID lockdown period. At times, the Skype call was a tiny bit ropey, but we did not re-record it because I felt the content of the interview was so strong. Christy Dignam's dad actually passed away very shortly after we recorded it, so for that reason, we also delayed it. But I think it's a very powerful listen, and I know you'll enjoy it. Christy had an unusual background. He wasn't into rock music as a child. No, uh, my first introduction to music would have been classical singing and opera music and stuff. Because um, my father, was he was into John McCormick and Caruso and all those type singers. So that's where I initially got me, me love of music. Not the kind of music that most kids your age in Dublin would have been into? No, no, not at all. Especially in Fingless. <laughs> no, but it was just, I don't know, it was, it was just something. My dad, when he'd been making, they used to make, he worked in CAE, but he'd make the dinner on a Saturday and Sunday because he was off those days. And when he's making the dinner, he used to be singing John McCormick songs or Caruso or whatever. So that, that, that's just the first music I was exposed to, you know. It's fantastic. And at what stage in your life did you begin singing on stage? Well, um, I was in the. I started singing in the school choir when I was when I, what, that would have been in primary school. So from we say ten up to 12, 13. and then um, I started singing with the band at about sixteen or seventeen or something, which just with Mickey Mouse bands. But I I I was singing through the punk. Remember all the punk yeah. singing. And I wrecked my voice from kind of screaming and shouting. So then I went, I went looking for a singing teacher, and I found a guy called Frank Merriman who had this, the Bel Canto School of Singing. It was it was in Parnelli at the time. So he 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 taught a style called Bel Canto, which is what um, Pavarotti uses and what Caruso would have used back in the day. So that was a type of singing was created by by the monks, and the monks with their voices would crack up from singing in the monastery all day. And he developed this technique of singing. That the more you sang, the more free your voice got, and the more powerful it got. So this, and because he used classical singing to uh, to train this type of singing, and because I'd already been into that type of music, I jumped all over it. And I was. What were you singing then on stage while you were training like that? Oh well, I was singing. I was. I was. I, I, that was right up to the Aslan thing. So I'd been singing rock and roll. You know, I'd been with a few different singing teachers who. Who, you know, they'd say to me, there's no point in you coming in here if you're going to be singing that bloody rock and roll when you get out. <laughs> but Frank wasn't like that. He, he just saw singing as singing. And it didn't matter what type of singing you were singing. Once you were singing with a free voice, it didn't matter what genre of music you were singing. That's great. And what what were the musical influences for the young Christy? Well, my first big one was, we had a, we had a thing on our house before cable TV and all. Whatever way our aerial was positioned on the roof, we were one of the only families on the road that could get BBC. So all the teenagers from our road used to come into our house to look at top of the pops. 
that that would have been my first kind of, you know, into popular music. And I remember when I was about 12 or 13 seeing David Bowie singing Life on Mars. And that, that just absolutely blew me away. So that was me, me introduction to popular music. And what was it about Bowie that caught your attention more than the others? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, what can you, what is it about that that Bowie brings to anybody? He was just different. He was, you know, he, he was he was androgynous at the time, you know. And at that time, all the bands were kind of long hair and beards and kind of heavy rock. And he came out with the glam rock thing. And it just totally, I don't know, it just appealed to me for some reason. Mm. Well, apart from his talent, he was he was colourful and bright, etc. As as, yeah. as you say. Yeah. And what age were you when you started writing? Oh God, I'd have been about fifteen, sixteen, or something like that. But by then, the songs were terrible, you know, absolutely terrible. Were you writing them on your own? Yeah, initially I was. Yeah, and then then see, I I've been with Joe from Aslan since I've, since we're about nine. We were in school together. So he was always kind of around as well, you know. Yeah. And did any of those early things you wrote come to fruition, you and Joe, no? Well, this is, you know, this oh, is. Oh, I love this is. Right, well, when that started off, and a lot of people wouldn't know this, but when that started off as a song, it was kind of a real punky kind of rock song. So it used to go, These are the hands of a tired man. This is the old man's shroud. These are the eyes of a blood-crazed tiger. And it was a real rocky thing. And I loved the lyrics of it, but I knew it wasn't, the melody of it wasn't right. So we shelved it and then went back to it a very year later and then finished it in in its present format. You were a young teenager writing that, were you? This is. Well, no, yeah, I'd have been about 18. Can I ask you about the lyrics of This Is? These are the hands of a tired man, is a very powerful opening line. What's behind that? Well, that was that, that was my father's hands. My father worked in CIE for 40 years as a, an upholsterer, a coach trimmer. But he was an upholsterer by trade. But his hands were all kind of hard and calloused. And I remember as a kid feeling them, you know. And So that's what these are the hands of a tired man was my dad's hands. And this is the old man's shroud was his, his life and his house and everything, all of us. And then the whole the song with the things about the, the, these are the feet of it. Uh, punished pilgrim. That was people walking up Crow Patrick in their bare feet, and you know, and this is just lines about teenage mothers. So at that time, the Catholic Church was kind of losing its grip on Ireland, and we were kind of obviously we were seeing all that, you know. And for the first time ever, if you got pregnant as a as a young girl, you weren't sent to some um, some uh, laundries down the country somewhere. You could actually have your child, and there was not the shame was there wasn't much shame in it. So all those things were in the song you know it's very powerful stuff would you and Joe discuss all that before you go writing no well usually what happens is Joe will usually play something on the guitar and wherever he plays will evoke some sort of mills you know and then you try and get the lyrics to match the mills that Joe's evoked with the guitar but then once the lyrics start and we get on to a topic it's kind of you know we're kind of bouncing off each other then and Mm-hmm. That's how that's how the songs are completed, because the, the chorus in this is when we wrote this is first we couldn't find the chorus for it, and then I'd heard Annie Lennox, you know, um, Sweet Dreams yeah. from Annie Lennox. So you know the way she sings, uh, "No one in it could be like this. I'm grown and overblown with bliss." And I just loved the way she was using one word with loads of notes. So that's where everybody hits you with his feeling. 
that's where that came from. So that's, you know, you're kind of influenced by everything around you and you put all those things into a pot and hopefully you come out with something decent. Everybody hits you, everybody knocks you down. Yeah, well, that was about just a begrudging attitude because we, 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 used, to, we used to rehearse some of the lads, Billy and Tony at the time, lived in Ballymun. We were in Fingers. So we'd walk to Ballymun where all the gear was stored. And then we'd put all the gear into shopping trolleys and we'd wheel them up to the, the, the airport. And we used to rehearse. There was a redundant farmhouse on the airport grounds. And we had the pigsty as a rehearsal room. So we'd be wheeling all the stuff up the, up the, from Ballymun to, to the airport. And people would say, look, you pigs, you think you're going to be famous? And, and just that begrudging attitude, I could never understand that, you know. So that's what that everybody hits you, everybody knocks you down and all. Because that's what that was, you know. Why, why, why are you trying to chase your dream? Why do people have the need to knock it, you know? Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant imagery in it. And Crazy World then, which is... Yeah. So Crazy World, what happened was we'd split up for... A, after the first album, we'd split up for a couple of years. And then... Um, we were, we wanted something to, for the next, the, the second album. We wanted something, you know, to, let's call it this is of the second album. So Crazy World, the kind of nucleus or the, the seed of that was when me, when me, uh, me, me daughter was born, at the time I was strung out on heroin and uh, I was in a bad way. And the baby was born and she was put out in a crib just outside the kind of emergency trial. And my wife said to me, she said, look, you have a daughter now, you, you know, you have responsibilities. You have to snap out the buzzer on, you know, and start taking responsibility. And I remember looking at Kira and thinking, how am I going to protect her in this world? I can't even make sense of it myself, you know. And so that was the, that was where the seed of, of Crazy World was sown. But then the song then wasn't actually complete till a couple of years later. Mm. But it's very, you're very, you, you bury your soul in it. How can I protect you? But then I've, yeah. fa- I've fallen down so many times. Well, that was that because you know by that time, but uh, you know I'd gone through the, I'd been in the adi- in the middle of the addiction. We'd split up with the band, and now we are back together again. And that was it, you know, like I was falling down. I was kind of nearly, I was nearly apologising to the Irish nation for for kind of letting. Let, There's a lot of people that we are to letting down. We're in the band, fans of the band who put our kind of. You know, they they put their trust in the band and stuff, and I felt they'd let a lot of people down, and that's where that's where all that was about, you know. But that humility in doing that, and and I know you would have annoyed people in the band, or I presume, and when you're, you know, the drugs obviously affected everything and other people. But, yeah. But that humility and and your the frailty and your openness about it, you often remind me of Paul McGrath, the way you're loved so much in Dublin. And Paul had his frailties as well, and and yeah, and I don't know. Do you That's feel? Nice do you sense. feel the love, Chris? Do you? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, you know, when when I was ill in hospital, there's. I swear to God, it absolutely blew me away. And I couldn't like that's what kind of I'd say that's what got me through because when I was ill, at one stage, um, when when I when I was diagnosed, uh, Catherine came in and the doctor had called all the family up to the hospital, and I was in hospital. I was oblivious to all this, but they called Catherine and Kira up, and uh, the, the Kira had said, "Listen, I'm getting married in July. This was in this was on Patrick's day of that year." So she said, um, I'm getting married in July. Do you think you'd be all right for the wedding? 
And the doctor said, we don't think he's going to make it through the night. If he makes it through the night, hopefully we have a chance of, you know, pulling the whole thing together. So that's how ill I was, is the point I'm making. And it was only, it was all that kind of, that brought me through the thing, you know. It was amazing. And you, you, you don't feel worthy of it, you know. It's, it's, it's a strange feeling. Yeah. But it's, well, that's true love, isn't it? When people people love you and forgive you. It's a, yeah, it's a lovely thing, you know. Yeah. And that's one thing about the Irish and about Dublin people, probably. More, it's, just, it's more of an Irish thing than a Dublin thing, I think. That when they take you to their heart, you know, that the, unless you do something really outrageously bad, that you're there forever, you know, and they'll support you forever. And that's a lovely thing about Irish mm. people. Your, your second musical choice, Christy, Creep and Radiohead, yeah. and it's probably from that time of exposing yourself as well, is it? Yeah, well, so I was there. I, I, you know, I tried loads of different methods of trying to get off the drugs, and nothing was seeming seeming to work, you know. So I'd heard about this Buddhist monastery in Thailand. It was up in the north jungles of of Thailand, and you, you kind of went over, and you were locked in this in this. Uh, monastery and I remember we used to we used to kneel down there'd be about 20 addicts and we'd all kneel down every morning and all the monks would be behind us chanting and these school buses would arrive from the, from from um, Bangkok and stuff and all these school kids would go out and they'd be all f- filming me you know but we'd be all kneeling down and they used to give you this drink and he used to drink this this drink, and then about five minutes later, he started vomiting. Like I'm talking about serious vomiting. It was get all the toxins out of your body. So all the kids would be videoing this, and this was to show them not to take drugs, kind of thing. It was a very, it was, it was a weird, a weird vibe. But anyway, while I was over there, um, for some reason that song just resonated with me. I don't know why it was, but just so I had a guitar over there, and I used to just, I used to just play that nearly constantly. Yeah, the creep song by, by Radiohead. For some reason, that just resonated with me at the time, you know. I'm I'm looking at the words of it, and I was looking up the words before we did this, you know. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo, what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. Um, yeah, well, that's, I mean, that, that's, that, that nearly says it all, doesn't it? How, how, how did you end up going to Thailand? Had you run out of options here, effectively? Well, yeah, I, no, you see, I was really trying this. I really wanted to stop the, the heroin, you know. And I'd, 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 do every, I'd get pick a day, you know, I'd pick a date and say, well, that day I'm going to do this, you know. And I'd be psyching myself right, and right up to the day. And then the next day I'd use again. And i think, how did that happen, you know. So I was looking for, I'd, and I heard this thing in Thailand was really hardcore. And I thought, if I suffer a little bit getting off this, Maybe that'll stop me getting back into it so, you know, so easily and stuff. And I was just really desperate to try and get off, get off drugs. And I'd seen a documentary about this place in, in Thailand, a place called Tamperbok in Thailand. And that's, that's where I was. So that's why I went over there. And is it difficult to get in on their programme? I mean, did many people speak English, for instance? Um, well, yeah, he spoke English. But I went, see, when I went, I heard there was an English charity that used to bring over like 10 addicts every every couple of months. So I had to fly over to Reading and, and, and meet with this group of people. So I, I flew over to Heathrow Airport. I met nine other addicts that I'd never seen, be, never, never met before in my life. And there was them and, and one facilitator. So the, the 11 of us flew over to Thailand 
picked up in Bangkok. We had driven two two hours north of Bangkok, up into the, the the jungles of northern Bangkok, to this Buddhist monastery. So when you went into the monastery, they took all your clothes off, your, your passports, your money, and you were given like a uniform, and you were given money that was only uh, it was only legal tender on that you know on, mm. on the compound. And he took a passport and all that, and that was it. Then you were in this kind of—it was a month-long kind of uh, extreme detox. And, and did music get you through it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that. There was a studio there, and they used to they used to record a lot of um, Buddhist chants and you know with Buddhist drums and stuff like that. So because they had the studio there, I used to mess around in the studio. One of the guys that one of the monks that there was a monk there from from England who would come to the to the to the monastery as an addict and then stay there and became a Buddhist monk wow. himself. So I I start messing in the studio with him and stuff, you know. That was the end. You 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 didn't relapse after Thailand. Oh, I did. Yeah, <laughs> you're joking. <laughs> yeah, I actually I actually I actually used in Bangkok the day after I came out of Thailand. But something happened to me in Thailand that it was like it got into me like osmosis almost, you know, and. Once, once I knew about addiction, and I kind of knew knew the harm I was doing to myself and to everybody else, I could I was it was never the same after that. So after whatever happened to me in Thailand, and I only felt the benefits of it, let's say a year later. Do you know what I mean? It's a very it's a well, it, you're very good at explaining how how cruel and tough addiction is and dealing with it. Yeah, well, it is. It's very tough, and I mean, you see, when you're an addict, there's none of it is enjoyable. Nobody no, nobody sets out when they're taking their first bit of heroin or cocaine or alcohol or whatever their addiction may be. Nobody takes that and says, I want to be putting a needle into my arm up some va- va- alleyway and, or I want to be mugging somebody in six months' time to get money for, for, for these drugs. Nobody thinks like that, you know. It's just, you know, it's, it's something that happens very insidiously, you know. It happens over a period of time. And with the, before you kind of realise it, you've become a different person, you know. And it's, it's, it's almost like a schizophrenia. And generally you're in a good place now in recent oh, minute, years. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in a great place. If, you know, it's it's a bit weird, Des, but I've said this before, you know, but the cancer was one of the best things that ever happened to me from a certain perspective because, you know, for years I was running around like a headless chicken trying to work out what life was about and what, what I was put on this earth for and stuff, you know. And when when I got um, when I got sick and I was in hospital, the band didn't really matter anymore. The house I lived in didn't matter. What car I drove didn't matter. The only thing that I wanted was another month with my kids, with my grandkids and my wife and my family, you know, or to see my grandson making his Holy Communion or my granddaughter making a, ho- a confirmation. They were the things that were important. And I just I remember thinking, all these years I've been running around like an idiot looking for what life was about and there it was in front of me all the time and I didn't realise it, you know. Mm. For younger listeners, I should explain that as you wrote about and, and spoke about you suffered sex, sexual abuse as a young youngster, and that obviously was yeah. was a key factor. It just uh, um, yes. just to give it a I context so. for young people that it wasn't just yeah. You went, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was um, when I was about six years of age. 
um, a neighbour a neighbour um, sent me up to the shops and when I came back with us he wanted a bottle of coke and when I came back he, he kind of brought me to his house and he stripped me off took the laces out of my shoes tied me to a chair and yeah. molested me and stuff yeah. and I, obviously that had a, a profound effect on me yeah. through life you know it's not the place for really, but you went for to someone else for for help, and they and then they they abused. Yes. Which was, which well, was yeah. Horrendous. So yeah, and, and and it happened that that that. So it initially happened when I was about six, and it happened a couple of times with that neighbour, and then when I kind of got away from him, I said it to a friend of mine, and then his brother kind of did the same thing to me then, when I was about nine years of age. So because it happened to me. A couple of times I started thinking I had some responsibility in this. That I, you know, I thought I must have been teasing them or leading them on or something like that. And then, you know, there was a part of me was kind of glad that he chose me as a child. I thought, well, he picked me, he didn't pick anybody else on the road. So then as an adult, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking he should have been disgusted and he should have been horrified. And then, so it just completely wrecks your head. It's, it's horrendous stuff, it's horrendous stuff. But, you, but you've battled through and now, yeah. as you say, you're in a good place, which is... I'm in a great place yeah. now, so it's, it's, it's amazing, you know. It's yeah. amazing the way, the way life... My, my life has been a very... It's been a very colourful tapestry, you know. I've, I've had some really great highs, I've had some really low lows, but it's been amazing, it's been an amazing life, you know. Mm. And a, and a great family, obviously, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. well, I have a wife who's, I've been with since I was 14 years of age. And what it, a I she is. <laughs> She's a great woman. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't have been able to do... I wouldn't have been able to put up with what she put up with, you know. Yeah, she's a great woman. But your last song, and your last choice, Christy, probably signifies getting through all this. Yes. When, when I was first diagnosed... When when I go asleep, obviously when you're asleep you're dreaming and you're not you're not dying of cancer, you know. But as soon as I'd open my eyes in the morning, it, it hit me like a hammer in the head, you know. You're, you're in here with cancer, so I wanted to try and change that moment, you know, so that when I opened my eyes, my first few minutes of of that day, went, instead of being a horrible time, I was trying to make them into a, a pleasurable time or a better time. So I picked a Spear Gable song with Kate Bush singing uh, on it. It's a duet they did called Don't Give Up. And it was just, well, so the minute I'd wake up in the morning, I'd play that song. And that was the first thing I'd heard in the morning. So and that was kind of trying to give me the strength to get through that day, you know. Well, it's, it's, it's a lovely way to finish. Uh, the program for for all our listeners and, and on behalf of all the listeners, can I throw the love at you, Christy? It's a thanks very pleasure, much, pleasure chatting to you, and may you have many more years of 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 the wonderful thank you. Goodness. God bless, Christy Dignan. Yes, stay safe. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One.